invite you to open his word. If you have uh, your own Bible, the second to the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Zechariah. If you don't have your own Bible along, reach for the one in the pew rack. Let's have lots of Bibles open now to the book of Zechariah, the ninth chapter and the ninth and tenth verses. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I encourage you to keep those Bibles open because we're going to look in some detail at verse 9. But to set the stage, I want to go forward 500 years and just remind you probably what you already know, that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that last public time, He chose to do it in a way that very self-consciously fulfilled this verse 9. You remember how he did it? He sent two disciples in and said, go find uh, an ass or a young colt, a donkey, and uh, bring it to me. I'm going to ride on it. And uh, Matthew 21 verse 4 says very specifically, this is Matthew's comment, this took place to fulfill... What was spoken by the prophet? And then he quotes one verse or part of the verse of Zechariah 9, 9 from 500 years earlier. So here's what I want us to do this morning. It's Palm Sunday morning when we celebrate this triumphal entry. We're always trying to think what's the meaning? What's going on here? What happened? What's the significance of this kind of entry? And the way I'd like to go about it this morning is by Standing at our modern perspective, looking back through the fulfillment, that last entry into Jerusalem when Jesus sat on that donkey as a kind of lens through which we then look at the prophecy which took place 500 years earlier. So we're not going to spend our time in the New Testament primarily. We're going to sit down right here in Zechariah with him in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, while the temple is being built or just after it's been built, 500 years before Jesus came and try to understand with Zechariah's help and the fulfillment's help, what's going on in verse 9 and then in verse 10 shortly or briefly. So let's go right to verse 9 and look at the first couple of lines. It begins, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Let's just stop there now and consider a few of these words. First of all, the words Zion and Jerusalem. Probably you know that those are the same city. Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. uh, It comes from a hill in Jerusalem to the the south named Zion. And then gradually by, by association came to refer to the whole city. And means literally sunny or sunshine or bright. Hundred times plus in the, in the Old Testament refer to Jerusalem. So it's a repetition here to the same city. 
The phrase daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, means people of, or you could say offspring of Jerusalem, offspring of Zion. Now, that might raise a problem, and you might say, being a modern person, 2,500 years later, Gentile, well, so it has nothing to do with me, right? I'm not a Jew, I'm not a daughter or part of the daughter of Zion or Jerusalem, and so this is of antiquarian interest to what might have happened then, or maybe even in Jerusalem when Jesus rode his donkey in, but not me, because I live way down here, don't have any Jewish blood in me, and don't live in Jerusalem. Now, let's be careful here. Don't write yourself out of this text too quickly. The Bible is inspired by God. It's rich. It's deep. Paul said something. Let me give you two pointers why not to write yourself out too quick. One is, in Galatians 4, you don't have to look this up. You might be curious to read it later. But in Galatians chapter 4, Paul says that in some strange sense, Jerusalem is the mother of all true believers in Christ. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm not going to tell you what it means. I just mention it because it hints that maybe you shouldn't say, this has nothing to do with me. Because I'm a Gentile believer way down here in the 20th century. That's pointer number one. There's a more close pointer for why you shouldn't rule yourself out. If you look at verse 10, before we're done here, this text is going to reach out and embrace. What does it say there? Command peace to whom? All the nations. That's America and that's you. And so if if you're willing to just let the text keep moving, the, the arms of this text wind up encircling everybody somehow. Now, I hope to clarify how by the time we're done. I just don't want you to hear daughter of Jerusalem and say, oh, good night. That's not me. It has nothing to do with me. It does have to do with you. And I think you'll see how before we're done. But the main point I want to get out of these two first lines is this. It's not new news at Bethlehem, but it sure is good news every time I say it and every time you think it. God's goal for Jerusalem and the daughter of Jerusalem and all those nations that his arms are going to encircle, God's goal for you is joy. That's very plain here. Shout. Rejoice greatly. Now, underline the word greatly. I mean, he could have said just rejoice, but he said greatly or exceedingly. And then the word shout, he could have used a more subdued word, but he said shout. Some of them say shout aloud. Some say shout in triumph. It's used for trumpet blast sometimes in the Old Testament. Other times for a shout of victory after a battle has been won. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this very long because next Sunday morning... The title of my sermon is Irrevocable Joy, based on John 16. And in the evening, we have the festival of the resurrection. Now, festivals are important, and these verses suggest why festivals are important. Paul says, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, always. But we don't go around 
rejoicing exceedingly always. And we don't go around shouting always. We probably should do more of that. But even in the best of saints, they don't always shout for joy. That's why we need festivals. Festivals are the punctuations in the life of this church that say sometimes, not just John Piper, but all the people should shout for joy. Should do something of an extraordinary nature for that exceeding joy that on Resurrection Day ought to, ought to be heard in this room. So I'm just going to leave some of the exposition of these words for next Sunday and some of the experience of them for next Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's God's goal for you. He wants you to be happy. Now, the rest of the text is the ground, the basis for this joy. Let's look at it. The prophecy begins, Lo, your king comes to you. Let's just stop right there. This means that the king who's coming, which we now know to be Jesus, because he so consciously made an effort to fulfill this verse. So unless you consider him a charlatan, a deceiver, Jesus is who we're talking about here. He's the one who said this about himself. Jesus and this king are the kind of king who makes people happy. Otherwise, the logic of this verse makes no sense at all. Rejoice exceedingly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Lo, your king is coming. Which means he is no Nero who fiddles indifferently while his people burn. He is no Marcos who lavishes himself with extraordinary luxury. I walked through his palace two years ago while his people languish in poverty. He is no Ayatollah who shames his people with extraordinary vindictiveness. He's the kind of king who when he comes... Everybody's going to rejoice. Children will sing Hosanna. Old men will dream dreams. Young slave girls will break free and prophesy. The lame will walk and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lepers will be cleansed and the poor will have good news preached to them. Everybody who's a daughter of Jerusalem and part of the offspring of Zion, will be glad when he comes. That's the kind of king he is. Lo, your king is coming. That's why you can be exceedingly glad. How does he make people happy, though? What does he do? Why is it that his coming... Results in shouts of joy. Why? Let's keep going. The next lines give part of the answer. Lo, your king comes to you. 
Now, the RSV says triumphant and victorious is he. Now, the versions go all over the place here. The New American Standard Bible says he is just instead of triumphant and endowed with salvation instead of victorious. And the NIV, New International Version, says he is righteous and having salvation. I want to focus in on these two phrases and try to clarify what's behind these different translations. Let's take the first one. Righteous or just, or the RSV says, what? Triumphant. Now, the reason, you can see just and righteous, they're almost the same. But the reason the RSV, not only here, but in many places, for example, one of my favorite texts, Isaiah 41.10. If you're not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will hold you up with my what? victorious right hand. It's righteous right hand, literally. And the RSV again translates it victorious. It does this in dozens of places. Now, why? Here's the reason. This word tzaddik, righteous, just, does mean righteous, but when God is described as righteous... It all, it, it, not always, but very often means he takes up for the, for the, for the right. He stands with those who are being mistreated, though they're trying to do right, and they're being ripped off, they're being accused, slandered, oppressed, and he stands with them and for them, successfully, triumphantly. That's where the idea comes from. When the RSV thinks about the righteousness of God, it is it is spelling out the implication of what comes of a righteous God standing in for those who are being treated unrighteously. And the answer is he wins for them. He vindicates them. And so it translates that implication with victory and triumph. Now, that's okay. We're not misled by that. But I like I like it when the translations remind us that the way he vindicates and the way he stands up and gets victory is righteously just. He's just. He's righteous. So I want to go with the translations here. Righteous and just. That's the first thing to hear about the king. The king is going to make people shout for joy because when he comes, he's going to take his stand with people who've been ripped for Christ's sake. Now, I think in the New Testament, where where is that taught in the New Testament? See if you don't see a similar sequence of thought in these verses. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? Righteousness sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's going on in that verse? It's very similar here. What he's saying is righteous people start to get abused, start to get misunderstood. They get slandered. They get persecuted. Sometimes they get killed. But when the king comes from heaven with all his kingly rule and authority, he'll give them the kingdom and they'll be vindicated. And if you read just a couple of verses further into verse 12, Of Matthew 5, it says, Rejoice, therefore, for your reward is great in heaven. 
It's a very similar sequence of thought here. You're called upon to rejoice even though you're persecuted. When men say all manner of evil against you falsely rejoice. Why? Because when, when the king comes from heaven and brings his kingdom, you're going to have the kingdom, which means you're going to be righteously vindicated. And therefore, there's ground for joy, no matter how much suffering you endure in this world. So I see a very similar sequence of thought in the Sermon on the Mount at that point in the Beatitudes and here. And the reason is this for joy. God is righteous in the sense that he will stand up for those who've lived for the right at great cost to themselves, vindicate them and bring them into his kingdom. And therefore, we can be glad. So the first reason it gives that this king is the kind of king who makes people glad is that he's righteous. Stands up for people who others thought were crazy for their commitment to love and lowliness and justice. The tables will be turned and the righteous and the lowly will be vindicated and they will rejoice. Now, what about this second term here in the verse? Righteous and victorious, the uh, RSV says, endowed with salvation and having salvation, the versions say. I don't, I don't like any of these translations. The Hebrew word behind these translations is very straightforward. It's not a weird or unusual word. There are no textual mix-ups or variants. The word is no shot. It means saved. It's used two other times in the Old Testament in this exact form. Only two. I'll read them to you. Psalm 33:16. A king is not saved by his great army. Very interesting. A king is not saved. Same word, by his great army. Here's the other one. Deuteronomy 33:29. Who is like you, O Israel, a people saved by the Lord? So why don't they translate it saved here? Straightforward Hebrew meaning used everywhere else like that. Why doesn't anybody translate it saved? Well, I read the commentaries and they simply say it just won't work in the context. It just doesn't fit in the context. That's their argument. It's a contextual decision. You're talking a king who's coming. You're talking shouts of joy. You're talking exceeding gladness. And you say... Behold, your king is coming, righteous and saved. It doesn't work. That's the argument. Now, what would you answer to this? My answer would be, that's the whole point. That's the point. It doesn't fit an ordinary king. The king here is not strong. Well, he is strong in one sense, but it's not going to be a bossy, brazen, fierce kind of strength. Let's read the next two lines and, and let's see if we can, by moving into them, shed light back on whether or not we should translate it saved or not. It says this king is going to be humble and riding on an ass, on a colt, the foal of an ass. So the first thing it says is humble. He's going to be a humble king. Not arrogant. 
not pushy, not loud and brazen, not manipulating the people for his own ego satisfaction. Um, the word is sometimes used of afflicted. He's going to be a king who's, who's uh, so lowly and meek. Remember those words from Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your, my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and meek, humble in heart, and you'll find rest. He's, he's so lowly, he's willing to be afflicted. And I just want to raise the possibility at this point, could it be that when you use a word that describes the king as humble and afflicted, you're opening or pointing toward the possibility that he might get himself into a fix from which he needs to be saved. Let's hold it out as a possibility for right now. Look at this donkey. Riding on an ass or a donkey. Now, what does that mean? What, what was Jesus saying when he very self-consciously said, I'm going to today ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, a young donkey? Well, probably you would say, well, look, it comes right after the word humble. Donkey's a little insignificant animal. And so he's just as it were, giving a parable in action of, the, of his humility and his lowliness and his, his willingness to be afflicted and laughed at if, if need be. I was at Pizza Hut with Abraham yesterday on our weekly outing. I get so many good illustrations at Pizza Hut because they got TVs at Pizza Hut. And that's the only time I ever see a TV. I'm sure I'd have lots of TV illustrations if I had a TV. But I, they got TV. The NCAA playoffs are there. And... Uh, the advertisements are, of course, always the best thing. And uh, they advertise Budweiser, right? Because they know who's watching these games, and they know how to advertise for these guys who want to be strong and macho. So they got these beer commercials, Budweiser commercials, and these horses, Clydesdale horses, ones with the big furry feet, you know? And they're not just kind of marching politely this time, yesterday at Pizza Hut, in the parade. They're charging, slow motion, through water. You see it? And water is splashing everywhere, and their manes are just oh, glorious horses. Now, I said to Karsten this morning, I said to him, uh, you couldn't sell beer with donkeys, could you? <laughs> uh, Karsten, he's, he's 16. 16 year olds never agree with, it, with anything you say because they're, they're smart and they can figure things out, right? And so he said, well, you could probably if you made it funny. Like bullet holes, you know, where the beer comes spilling out. Funny, funny ads sell beer. I said, that's right. Donkeys are just a joke. That's all they're good for. It's just a joke. Jesus did not come on a, on a stallion. He didn't come on a big war horse. He came on a donkey. He wouldn't have anything to sell, and he didn't want to look macho. Now, some of you who know the Old Testament real well might say to me at this point, now, be, be careful here what you do with these donkeys. Don't be too hard on them, because in the West, we laugh at donkeys. They're jokes. But in the East... And especially back then, they were a valued animal. Good work, work animal. 
And if you look up, like I did yesterday, uh, ass in your concordance just to see if any king wrote on one, they did. King's sons wrote on asses in the Old Testament. So the point is not merely to say he's a nobody because he's riding on a donkey. That's not the point. Humility is part of the point, but the main point seems to be the ass is a work animal, not a war animal. When you ride into a city on a horse whose head is flying in the air with armor hanging on the horse, people know why you're coming. You're going to make war or you've already made war and you've beat them. If you come with a a cloth piece laid over a donkey, you're coming to make peace. That's the second point. Humility is one part of it. But the other part of it is peace. Jesus came to make peace with Jerusalem. And I began to see connections all over the place as soon as that hit me. One of us in verse 10 that I've already pointed you to, he is going to command peace to the nations. So the the offer of peace that he makes to the daughter of, of Zion is going to be extended eventually to all the nations. But let me point you to confirmations of this in Luke You don't have to look this up. Just listen, and I'll read you a couple of verses. Right where David stopped reading in Luke 19.41, after the triumphal entry, it says this. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that today you knew the things that made for peace. Isn't that remarkable? Right when he gets into the city, he weeps and says, Oh, that they understood what I just did and what the terms of peace are in my lowliness and my openness to them. And then I said, Well, if it's here, maybe it's somewhere else. I went back up and I found it again. In chapter 19, verse 38, just a few verses earlier, three verses earlier, it says, Luke says that the people were shouting this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So I can't avoid the impression that Luke, in the way he's telling the story, means for you to understand that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, it was a peace mission. We would say today, he's riding under a white flag. And I thought when I saw that, I thought of saying that yesterday. I said, ooh, I shouldn't say that because white flag means surrender. You've been beat. I said, but, but maybe I should say it because when you get punched in the face and when you get spit on and when you get paper sack over your head and punched around and when you get a spear run up in your side and nails put through your hands as God You've surrendered. He's coming with a white flag. Why? Because he, the Son of Man came not to condemn, but that the world through him might be saved. He has his arms wide open. Another image is the hand, right? How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. The hen and the donkey mean the same thing. I'm a peacemaker. I I want peace. I hate 
I hate divisions between God and people. I want to get bitterness out of the way and sin out of the way and fear out of the way and indifference out of the way and anything from your background that cuts you off from God. I hate it. I want it out of the way. I'll do anything. I'll ride on a donkey. I call myself a hen. I'll let children praise me. I'll let people hit me. I'll go to the cross like a criminal. I'll do anything to help you make peace with God. That's what the donkey means. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. It's a peace mission. Now, how did he make peace? How did Jesus make peace? Oh, if you want something good to read this afternoon for devotions, read Ephesians 2 or Colossians 1. Let me read you Colossians 1.20. It says... He made peace by the blood of His cross. That's just the finishing of the Damascus Road begun with the donkey. The donkey is lowly, the cross was the lowest. It's all downhill from from the donkey to the cross. Let's go back now and take these words from Zechariah and just unfold them for Jesus and for us. Righteous, humble, riding on an ass... Righteous so that he can stand with us and for us and take our place as a righteous substitute and vindicate us. Humble and afflicted so that he's willing to be rejected and despised and killed for us. And riding on an ass because he wants to make peace and not war. He loves to make peace. Now, let's go back to the word saved or having salvation or victorious. Lo, your king comes to you. Righteous and saved, literally. Can that stand or must the context make us change that word to something different? You remember the translators reject it because this context is of a king. It's of shouting. It's of uh, glory and righteousness. And I suggest that the context points in the other direction as well, namely that the possibility exists that this king, when he enters in on a donkey, is going to be so afflicted, so abused, that he will need to be saved. How do you get saved when you've been murdered? How do you get saved when you've been murdered? Peter, preaching seven weeks after the murder, tells us exactly how he got saved. This is Acts chapter 2. Peter standing up on Pentecost preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. You killed Jesus by the hand of lawless men, but Christ raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was saved. The pangs of death that held him down were slashed by his father. And he broke out, saved from death. When you describe a king coming as one who is powerful, regal, that's one thing. If you describe him as righteous and saved, sure, it doesn't sound all that great, but it wasn't supposed to. A donkey doesn't sound all that great either. He was afflicted, he was abused, he was defeated, and he needed saving from death. And Jesus His Father saved him. That means he can save you because he was saved. He laid down his life 
He hates the breach between you and God, and he wants to bring you and God together. He did everything he possibly could to make a way. Now, one last objection, and then we're done. Let me try to answer this objection. It's really the same one that I I thought might be raised at the beginning, and somebody might say, well, look, you've got us now all the way through the message, and uh, I don't see myself in this in this because, uh, all right, I, I see that there was the prophecy, and then I, I can even see that Jesus, in a remarkable way, fulfilled this for the daughter of Jerusalem in his day, but I'm a Gentile. I'm not Jewish, and I live 1,959 years later from Palm Sunday, and and uh, it just doesn't relate. And so I just want to read verse 10 and plead with you that it relates because I don't think God inspired this verse 10 for nothing. It says, I will cut you off. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is the northern kingdom of Israel. And the war horse from Jerusalem, that's the opposite of a donkey. He's going to cut that off. And the battle bow shall be cut off. So, in other words, all the chariots, horses, and, and bows, he's going to cut off the weapons of war so that he can make peace. And then it says, and he shall command peace to the nations. And his dominion shall be from sea to sea. So the one point I just want to press on you as we close is this. America is one of those nations, or the peoples of America are part of those nations. And therefore you, belonging to one of the peoples of America, are in this text. God knew that when he inspired Zechariah to write it. And therefore, just as the the donkey with its humble, dying king rode into Jerusalem in order to make peace, to close uh, the gap between heaven and, and, and earth, get sin out of the way through his death, so he rides, just as Brent prayed, into this room right now on a donkey. He, he's not yet on the stallion. He'll come on a stallion. But not yet. He's still on the donkey. His arms are still wide open. He's still the, the mother hen trying to gather her chicks. He, he's still looking at you with tears running down his face saying, Oh, that you knew the terms of peace. Oh, that you knew what it was all about. Longing for you to come and close ranks with him and accept his offer of forgiveness and peace. Well, let me just add one last incentive for you to make peace with God through Jesus Christ this morning. I have in mind both Christians and non-Christians here. People who haven't believed and people who do believe but have gaps, have hindrances between you and God this morning. I just want all of these to be cleared out of the way by this peacemaking Christ this morning. And the last incentive for all of us comes from these words, His dominion shall be from sea to sea. I want you to dwell on what that means. What it means is this. Very soon, perhaps, this humble, righteous, killed, peacemaking king, who now reigns at his father's right right hand in heaven, very soon he's going to come back to this earth. And when he comes... He's going to establish his kingdom and extend his dominion from sea to sea. There'll be a judgment. 
The sheep will be separated from the goats. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, the righteous, not the perfect, but those who through Jesus Christ have made peace with God, the righteous ones, will enter the kingdom, blessed of the Father. And those who are not righteous, who have rejected his terms of peace, will be sent into outer darkness and everlasting punishment. And so the closing incentive is to just create in your mind a picture of a glorious kingdom on this earth. No pockets of rebellion left, but rather God ruling everywhere and righteousness and peace. And everyone who has rejected the terms cast out forever and ever. And I just can't imagine that anybody would want to turn down the peacemaking mission of Jesus Christ this morning holding out his crucified hands and saying, I am the way to the Father. Make peace with him through me. Let's just bow in a moment of silence. And I just encourage you, wherever you are on your walk with Christ or on your walk toward Christ, that you would make peace with God right now. And just tell Christ how much you appreciate his peacemaking mission and rid yourself right now by confession and repentance of anything that's between you and the Father. Let's just pray.